0: Welcome to Let Genius Burn, a podcast series about the life and legacy of Louisa May Alcott. I'm Jill Fuller. And I'm Jamie Burgess. In today's episode, we'll introduce you to a woman whose many interests bring her consistently back to the Alcott family. Lauren Stern is a former Concord Junior volunteer who began working at historical properties in Concord in her early teens and she's been a guide at Orchard House for over 15 years. She also sews her own historically accurate dresses and performs historical dances around the country. Today on Let Genius Burn, we chat with Lauren about fashion trends in Louisa's time, transcribing May Alcott's letters at Houghton Library, and much more. This is Louisa in Style.
1: So, I came to museums actually pretty young, I think. Um, I have always really liked history. I grew up in the Boston area, surrounded by a lot of history, with a family that spent a lot of time going to museums. So, I sort of had an appreciation for that and was just really interested in it as a kid. And when I was like six or seven, my mom read me Little Women, like read the book out loud to me, um, which was something we did in our house. We read books out loud at night. And so we used to go to Orchard House. Um, And when I was, I think, 15, I said to my mom, like, this is what I want to do when I grow up. I want to work here. And so Mm -hmm. in true, like, embarrassing your middle school age child's fashion, my mother asked the desk, lady like how old do you have to be to work here and um that woman was Amy Belding Brown who is a novelist in her own right so that's a funny story too because that's how I met her um but she told my mom about this group that was called the Junior Volunteers of Concord it morphed into the Concordant Volunteers and unfortunately is no longer um around but at the time it was a very active living history group for young people where we went to boot camp every summer So there was an interview process. If you got in, which I did, I was lucky. um, You spent a week every summer in the archives in Concord and Boston. So we worked at, I think, three or four sites in Concord and then a few sites in Boston and Cambridge as well, doing living history programs that we wrote ourselves based on the letters and journals of the people who lived there that we were reading. So then you did become a guide at Orchard House, like you fulfilled your dream, your childhood dream. I did. Um, pretty much as soon as I was old enough to uh, like legally work and not be a volunteer, um, I interviewed at Orchard House and I started guiding. So in high school, I was both doing living history programs for the volunteer group and then also doing them professionally at, at Orchard House um, and guiding, doing third-person interpretation, where I was myself in a costume talking to folks and then also doing third-person guiding in modern clothes. I think my favorite program that I did at Orchard House was one that I actually had started and I unfortunately I don't think they do it anymore because I'm not working as, as often, but it was for May Alcott. It was for her birthday. And I, had decided when I did that program that I did not want to talk about little women because May in her letters talks about how proud she is of her sister but also like how she's her own person and Amy and May are not the same and so I really wanted to do a program that didn't talk about little women at all and that was something at the time Orchard House wasn't doing at all. All of our living history programs were set in 1868 or later so that when someone came to the house and talk to you and you're in first person you could still talk about little women and how it was written which mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense because people get very confused when you're in, when they're in a first person setting and they want to ask about a thing and it's not the right year to ask about something right. that's stressful for the, the guest and you don't want that as an interpreter like you want to be able to answer their questions right but for this program this one program we were like okay we're not talking about little women so we set the program in 1863 because that was when Louisa had come back from war. She had published hospital sketches that summer because May's birthday is in July. So there was a lot to talk about with Louisa's writing and also with May's own experiences with the war and with abolition um, and with her art. So it felt like a really good year. And also <laughs> she turned 23 that year and I was 23 the year we did that program. And so I was like, this is what we're going to do. Um, <laughs> I love but, Yeah, my one little way of like getting myself in there. Um, <laughs> but that was really fun because we did a first person tour with Marmee and May through the house. And so I was in character, but then afterwards we served birthday cake outside and Marmee would go out with the guests and like start serving cake. And I would change into my modern guiding clothes and come back out. And then I would do the rest of the, conversation as myself Mm. so that people had a chance to ask questions about what happened to May after 1863 and kind of anything they wanted to know and that it was a very small group program and so it would be like 12 people and me talking and it was just really, really fun to be able to do both the first person and contextualize it at the end.
0: Yeah, that's really a cool way of doing it. Now, I completely agree with you. Like context is like my favorite word when it comes to history. So I I completely agree as far as doing the, the third person interpretation. I do think it's so important to be able to talk about things that, and to have the vocabulary for things that otherwise you just don't have. And so it sounds like we're kind of on the same page on that one, but I just love hearing that kind of perspective. Um, And I love that mashup. That's kind of neat to be able to do it both ways. I think that's really helpful for guests. Yeah, I think as a guide, one of the things that I find most challenging, and Jamie, I'm
1: curious if your thoughts on this is that balance between being a guardian. It's not just a guardian. You are a guardian of the collection. You are a logistics professional because, you know, especially in the summer when it's really busy pre-plague dealing with like fire safety laws and how many people can be in the house at one time and like making sure that your group is moving at a pace that's not going to mess up everything else that's going on around you and everyone else who's trying to experience that space with the sense of welcoming and home and warmth that we really want to evoke because from readings about the Alcotts that's how it was when you went to visit them that's what their home was like and so trying to give people that feeling in that sense while also maintaining kind of all the other things that you have to do I find to be um, quite challenging like really interesting and I enjoy guiding very much but like that is a super challenging part for me. Yeah I think
2: tone you know striking the right tone was always something that I wouldn't say struggled with but that I thought about a lot as a guide particularly when I'd be in in a certain area of research where I was like really excited about one thing and like really wanted to talk about that and knew that I still had to like give this like quite well-rounded quite brief explanation about the Alcotts and really wanting to go deeper on certain things and you you always had guests where you could do that but you had to do it like outside and after the fact which you know that's the nature of it like you don't want to keep Fifteen people for an hour and a half because one person cares about your particular interest in May's paintings or whatever it is.
0: So, can you guys share some stories? I have two Orchard House guides on Zoom with me right now. This is a dream come true for me. So, I'm trying to
2: think of a story that's like appropriate. There's stories I was record off the
0: record. This has to be something that can be on the record.
1: <laughs> so, this isn't a story, I guess, about how like Orchard House has meaning for a lot of people, but I was doing a living history program for kids. We tend to do those in the morning. So I was at the house early uh, before opening because I was getting ready. And Jan, who's the uh, executive director was there with a crew of some kind, and they were doing stuff in the house, which had like, that happens they do it before or after hours so they're not interrupting the normal flow of the day and I was getting into my 1860s gear and doing my hair and putting in my contact lenses and getting myself ready for my program and I was working with a couple of other people and they got there and I was getting kind of nervous because Jan was still in the house with the crew and we had like 25 eight-year-olds showing up for this program and (laughs) I didn't want to tell Chan that she had to get out of the house but I was like starting to get really anxious about working around them and how this was going to work and I'm standing in the guides room which is directly behind May Alcott's bedroom so there's a door from May Alcott's bedroom a little hallway and then another door into what's now the guides like room getting ready area. And all of a sudden, Jan pokes her head into the guides room from May's bedroom. And she says, Lauren, can you come here for a minute? I I need you for a second. I was like, okay. So I'm in my hoop skirt, you know, maneuvering around the modern, like, dining room table that's now in this, like, tiny little space for guides to eat lunch at, like, wiggling through, go out into May's bedroom. And there's um, a woman with Jan, and she has some photography equipment. And... Jan says can you just tell her about your dress I just I wanted to talk I wanted to tell her Lauren makes all of her own things like you know just just tell her about your dress so I told her a little bit about my dress and that I had made it um (laughs) I like in true I was probably like 20 when this happened so not great on the filter I turned to Dan and I was like we have a program starting soon (laughs) like are you guys gonna be done and she was like yeah yeah don't worry like we'll work around you and I was like okay and as this was happening like the gears in my head kind of clicked into place. And I walked back into the guides room and I just stood there for a minute and I turned to one of the guides, uh, a friend of mine. And I said, I think that was Annie Leibovitz. And she was like, no, it wasn't. What are you talking about? There's no way that was Annie Leibovitz. And I was like, no, I'm pretty sure it was. And she was like, no. And so then I was like, all right. And so I like had to go do my program. I went and did my program. Um, Jan was still in the house. We worked around them. It was totally fine. Um, and the woman, the photographer who, uh, came in and watched a little bit of my program and kind of stood in the back and was like, totally respectful and listened in. And then like, they finished up and we finished up and got the kids out of the house and everything. And then I was guiding that day after the program. So I like went and changed and went and like got my tour and did my thing. And when I ran into my friend at lunch, she was like, you were right. That was Annie Lebowitz. And, um, they had gotten me a signed postcard because I was like, doing the program but so yeah so that's the time that I met Annie Levois and didn't know it <laughs> whoa
0: that's cool. I remember when she was around
2: quite a lot I met her a couple times but like I don't have a significant memory of it I just remember her with all her equipment and her like combat boots and just yeah. like such a chill vibe it was really
0: cool to see her work that's like so much creative feminine energy in one space like louisa's creative feminine energy and annie Leibowitz's creative feminine energy and it's like all just coming together in orchard house like i can't even believe it like that would have You've been crazy. seen
2: the book pilgrimage that she made i've seen <laughs> uh, photos from it mm-hmm. historical programs when so you know you're like in your costume and we did the christmas program a bit differently which was that we didn't walk the same group through every room. It's like the group moves and the interpreters are stationed in each room. And I was often stationed in May's room. So like truth be told, when I was like the new kid on the block and people were like, oh, there's like this girl, with this blonde curly hair, like playing May. Lauren was like, I don't know if this chick's going to be up to the task. And I had to like prove myself. Like I was like, no, I care about this. I'm going to do a good job. And um, hopefully I did, but I, you definitely I did. Just remember like during the Christmas program, you know, you'd have a group come through and then you had maybe like 15 minutes or so between the groups and you could kind of get together with the guides who were <laughs> stationed in the other room. So like those of us who are upstairs, so like Louisa's room, May's room and the parents' bedroom. We could kind of like get together and like you know gossip and chat. And um, this one guy, Julie Brashler, would like always stay in character, and she just made me laugh so hard. Like if I had on you know like a jack, like a modern jacket to stay warm when the guests weren't in the room or something, she'd be like, "May, where did you find that jacket in the mission barrel? You better put that thing away. If Marmy sees you, like she would just." Crack me up with that stuff. And she just would do it so straight faced because Jan is the only one who interprets as Louisa. So in Louisa's bedroom, it was usually like someone portraying Anna or someone else. And Julie was often playing Anna and she just cracked me up. She moved back to Missouri to her family, but she's the person that first invited me to the Louise May Alcott invite only Facebook group where I first met Jill. So all comes full circle. So another aspect of your research and scholarship has been with some primary source materials, like going to Houghton Library where the Alcott's archives are kept and reading their letters and journals. Um, Can you talk about how you got started on that or why you wanted to do it?
1: So I got started doing archival research through the Junior Volunteers of Concord, which is the group that I started um, volunteering with. We learned how to be in archives basically, like how do you work with these kinds of materials which can be quite delicate. And also things like how do you interpret handwriting? Because um, especially for people who are um, unfamiliar in the 19th century, it was, common as a way to save paper. If you were sending a letter, for example, to write crossways on the paper. So you would write, you know, horizontally the way we would normally write on a piece of paper, and then you would turn the paper 90 degrees, and you would write again. So the text is all interlocked. And that is quite difficult to piece apart if you've never seen it before. So just kind of learning how to approach documents, how to approach things like that. I got a lot of really good instruction from archive professionals in that group. And the main archives that I work with for the Alcotts are Houghton Library and the Concord Special Collections. Um, so at the Concord Library, and then there's a National Park Service site that has all of the Alcott collections from when they lived at Hillside, now Wayside, because that's a National Park Service site. Um, mostly the NPS collection has uh, like Beth's letters, um, Lizzie's journals and stuff. So that's really interesting and helpful for understanding what their sort of younger lives were like. Um, But May was quite young. So May is my main um, sister of interest. But she was quite young when they lived at Hillside. So she wasn't really doing a whole lot of writing. But she does have some journals and like small drawings and stuff that she that she did as a kid. And then her most of her writing is at Houghton. So that's primarily where I've been for that. Um, And a lot of the writings of her contemporaries from other families in Concord are at the Concord Special Collections at the Concord Library. So I always try to look at As many perspectives of the story as I can and so that's why I go to the library as well.
0: So what exactly about May are you researching right now? What are you looking for or just is there something like a particular research question you're looking for or? So
1: right now I'm actually focused on transcription. So when I was doing research on May in particular, I read a lot of her letters um, and journals, And then I took my, I took notes on them and what I was reading and that was kind and occasionally I would write out a quote or something that I wanted to remember, try to memorize to do first person interpretation. But for the most part, I was reading these things to learn from them. Mm -hmm. And my dream is to be able to see an annotated selected letters and selected journals for May the same way that we have for Louisa, because when Mm -hmm. I was just getting started in museums, I actually got quizzed on Louisa's letters and journals like part of that boot camp I mentioned was we had to read certain chapters every day and then we would have to take a quiz on them the next day. So um, I'm, those sources are so central to my understanding of the Alcotts and of history. I'd love to see more people be able to encounter those sources because I was talking about sort of different perspectives May references a lot of people by initials only. She references stories in an offhanded way because she's writing to friends. She's talking about inside jokes and things that happened with her friends. And I have gone back and read the letters by those friends and their journals. And you can kind of piece together what it is that she's talking about. And so now I have a document going where I'm transcribing and annotating. So I'm transcribing out May's letters and then annotating them with all the background information of who these people are that she's talking about and who the initials stand for and what the events are that she's referencing um, on and off as much as I can.
0: Wow. That would be incredible. Like that, I mean, that'd be an incredible thing for scholarship to have because I mean, we don't have any other published source from any sister. We only have Louisa's.
1: Yeah. And I it was interesting. While we, I was getting ready to talk to you, I was kind of looking at some sources that I bookmarked. And one was a paper by um, Azelina Flint, where she talks about going to Houghton and getting to experience May's letters and getting a sense of May's voice. And that was a great reminder that I'm very privileged to have grown up 10 minutes from Houghton Library and I have had an Orchard House staff card for a really long time so I've been able to go do that archival research and I I want to make that more accessible. I want to open that up to more people.
2: And you know there's still so now there are recent very recently two books that have come out about May which after you know years and years of being an Orchard House guide and at the end of nearly every tour being asked like where can I learn more about May? Is there a book I can buy? And you wish that you had like a $30 book to just hand the person and be like, this is the one. There was forever the Caroline Tickner biography, uh biography and quotation marks of May. It's more of like memoir kind of compilation. Yeah. I guess it is called May Alcott a memoir. Let's it is, yeah. Let's call it made a spade. It says, <laughs> frankly, what it is. It is not a biography, um, but it is. Uh, from 1926 so well before like established standards and biography kind of the way that they exist to us now and so it's yeah kind of gossipy and anecdotal and just like you don't know what is what in it is it real you know whose stories are these etc and then now just within the past six months there are two new books about May one is uh, particularly focusing on her art and It's published by a university press. I don't think it's going to be the kind of book that, you know, is easy to access outside of a library. And then the collection, which is called The Forgotten Alcott, which, you know, many very prominent Alcott scholars have contributed essays to this book. And I really can't wait to look at it. Um, But again, a lot of it is like literary criticism or, um, you know, comparing May with, you know, portraits of her in, Alcott's fiction and so on. So um I still think it's interesting that, you know, you have the other Alcott, which is a novel about May and the forgotten Alcott, and you know, these still these ideas about May that like she's been so like cast aside. And when you read how she writes, like she is the star of the show. And when you're at Orchard House, she's absolutely the star of the show. Like Louisa who, everyone is just like, May, May, May. So it's, you know, it's just funny how she kind of gets like relegated and you're like, no, when you're in it, she is not relegated at all.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that drew me to May initially and has kept me in love with her writing is A, it's totally unfiltered. She is not writing to be a writer. She's writing to tell her friends about her day or apologize because she's worried that she wasn't nice enough when they stopped by to visit. That's a really sweet letter. Um, And she is sort of writing accounts of the balls that she went to and like the things that she's doing with her friends and the drinking song that Louisa wrote for her group of boys from Sanborn school that used to come and visit and they drank all of Bronson's root beer. (laughs) Yeah. Like they're just, they're so fun. Her letters are so fun. Um, So part of it is how vibrant, yeah, how vibrant her voice is. And then part of it for me too, is she was, I mean, Louisa talks about this and you guys talked about it um, in the last season of the podcast, that she was sort of sheltered or too young to understand a lot of some of the early family struggles that Louisa and Anna were much more involved in or much more aware of. And so she has this kind of joyous disposition that really shone at Orchard House I think in particular and she you know shares that in her letters and other people share that in their stories about her and having not only her own writing but all of her contemporaries writing also talking about her to give a little bit of a reality check on some of the stories is really helpful and that Makes her a joy to read and someone who comes off the page. Like her voice just kind of sticks with you and she feels really alive. And that makes it much easier to interpret the history, honestly. You know, just like each of the March sisters has their personality and kind of profile that people identify with, I think in any real family, everybody has a role. And May's, I personally think, was the I am going to be sunny and make you n- feel that everything is going to be okay, even though we're all worried. Like she's it's not that she's not worried. It's not that she's not aware that they don't have money. It's just that her approach to that is I am going to power through by smiling and teaching dance and painting things I can sell and teaching art lessons. And just she, I think, fit in in a way that Louisa didn't always feel like Mm -hmm. she did into sort of the more mainstream society around her. And so she was able to, to leverage that into supporting herself into independence, financial independence in some ways, because she was able to take on this role. And um, she had friends in the very wealthy Brahmin families in Boston who she would you know, be invited to go stay with them and, and kind of live that life. And um, it wasn't, I don't think of it as being sort of like worse or better than Louisa. It's just a very different experience of the world. Sure. And I appreciate- but it's
2: important for Yeah. You know, our readers and listeners to see that additional perspective, I think, for sure. And I think May, like you just like you said, you know, she fit in better. She conventional femininity came easier to her. She definitely never felt the way Louisa felt of like, am I womanly enough? I don't Mm -hmm. think that that was a question that May ever had. Like, she was at home in her gender and in her body and 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 used it and embodied it. I mean, had no problem being soaking wet in a muslin dress walking through Concord. Yep. Like she had the figure. Yep. We know uh, Daniel Chester French, right? Like she was, you know, she was tall and beautiful and didn't have those questions. So I think, you know, when she- When was she loves fashion. Yeah. She was thinking about the question of, Getting married, it was probably a question of when and not if. And Louisa was like, "If and then no."
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think their trajectory on relationships is really fascinating. I know that there are some letters that May wrote to her mother that I have not transcribed yet, but I've read them, where she talks about she's she's like old (laughs) for a nineteenth-century woman to get married, and she's put her career first. She really focused on art and travel. And she doesn't know if she's going to find someone or if that has kind of gotten in the way of her being able to get married or be marriageable, which is an equally valid struggle, um, but a very different one than what her sister was going through. So around May
2: and clothing, is that kind of how you got into the dressmaking part of it? Or was it other influences that got you into that?
1: So it wasn't May in particular, it was living history in general. So one of the things about being a volunteer, as opposed to staff at Orchard House, if you're a staff member, they they do have clothing that you can wear when you do living history programs that are provided. But as a volunteer um, in this external group, we didn't have that. We were required to have at least one outfit of our own. And so my, my mom sewed and she had taught me to sew. And so she helped put something together for me. But I really I already knew how to sew at that point, and I was interested in sewing, and that really struck something. I like some kind of creative nerve that I thought this was the coolest thing, and I really wanted to try it. So from there, I just started making stuff and experimenting. And now when I look at pictures of the dresses that I was making in high school, like they're not very good. <laughs> um, I've obviously improved a lot over the years with practice, but I definitely from those early experiences making dresses to wear to Orchard House and to do living history programs, I got an appreciation of the techniques that were used to assemble clothing, the sort of lines and shapes that you wanted to achieve in the final ensemble and like the aesthetics developing an eye for what looks period, like what looks like a fashion plate or looks like something that would have been popular versus something that's maybe we would say more aesthetically appealing, but is very modern in that sense which is a lot of fun to kind of piece apart. What
2: are some of those like key differences? Was it because of limited technology back then to create certain shapes or was it just what was in fashion?
1: Fashion. So there are some things like what we would consider to be like really garish color combinations were super popular um, because in the 1860s and kind of that mid 19th century period, chemical dyes that, could create these really bright color fast colors and fabrics um, were just being invented and becoming available to the mass market and so you see like lime green and chartreuse and hot pink and safety cone orange not only that all exist but exist together in the same ensemble um, and plaids and things and like I think that's not something that we expect as modern people to have been popular, but but it was. And also you have to imagine like when your lighting is different and much dimmer, the mm-hmm. amount of brightness that colors need to look neon is significantly higher. So <laughs> I think a lot of those colors would have read differently in the period than sure. they read now under like modern museum lighting when you see photos of these collections.
0: But never thought of that. Yeah. That's true. Yeah.
2: That is so interesting. When you look at black and white photos, you think, oh, that must have right. been, you know,
0: right or like you go to you like go to colonial colored. williamsburg this isn't like fashion but you know you see like some of the yeah. wallpaper or the paint. it's like bright green or whatever but yeah. i never thought about how that could be tied with like the lighting and things like that too or it would have looked very different at night than it does during the day
1: hmm. yes yeah, so you see these like oh, really incredibly bright colored ball gowns and when we're talking especially about like mid 1860s at the height of the crinoline era like the largest possible skirts if you're going really fashionable now, there's this one dress that comes to mind that's like bright safety cone orange. And now we look at that and we're like, what are you doing? This is a pumpkin. <laughs> but in the period, A, that was the height of technology. You are wearing new science when you wear that dress. And in a dimly lit ballroom with gas lighting, even the brightest possible gas lighting, like that's not going to look like a safety cone. Well, they didn't have safety cones at the time but like that's not going <laughs> to look bright and garish the way it does to us in the you know very brightly lit photography studio where that is being photographed for the museum's online collection right. so it really does like that context really matters. context
0: yeah i was just gonna say that yep. yeah context yeah. matters mm-hmm. always always yep and in terms of the shapes that's
1: totally fashion so okay. you know the round sort of slope-shouldered silhouette, which was considered very fashionable for both men and women in the sort of mid-19th century, we'll call that 1840s to mid-1860s range. That's what was fashionable in that period. Whereas if you look earlier, if we look at sort of when Abigail and Bronson were were young, those federal era, like 1810s, 1820s silhouettes are like very columnar in the kind of classical mm-hmm. revival period. You've got that kind of Roman Roman column look happening with the dresses and the high waistlines. And then transitioning into the 1820s, they get a little bit more A-line, a fuller skirt at the bottom, but it's still like quite long and then sort of exploding large hats at the top. And then it shifts again into triangles in the 1830s where you have this like triangular shape with very big shoulders and very large sleeves for women and also quite large shoulders for men on the coats into a narrow waist into a wide skirt Again, so you have these like hourglass double triangle things happening. Um, and then you get into that sort of rounded oval look by the mid century. So all of those shapes and how you build them out of fabric and get that three dimensional structure ties together. What was
2: the connection there? So you were saying like the height of the crinolines, like the biggest possible skirt was there after the Civil War Kind of what you, I guess. What I would expect is that everything kind of subdued. I don't know. I'm just thinking, like, but like leading up to the pandemic, it was like we were kind of going back to like the, you know, early 2000s crazy looks. And now I go into stores and everything looks like it's from prairie, and I'm like, what cottage core? So I just
0: think we're all in sweatpants I just now. Think that, you know, we don't even have fashion.
2: post Civil War. I don't know with limitations on available materials and stuff or what or did it still kind of keep getting bigger and bigger
1: great question I love do fashion you because no, no no it's great I'm trying to decide in what order to answer things and then I have a small rant about why I think prairie dresses are coming back in and we can get to maybe if you want at the end but great. um yes I do <laughs> yeah so The thing that I love about historical fashion and the thing that I love about historical dance is that any of these aspects of history, especially material culture, as you dig into it and you piece it apart, you're looking at history at the past just through a specific lens. And so like we were talking about chemical dyes and how really that's science. And you see the same thing with crinolines, because what started as a lot of skirt, you're wearing many petticoats to achieve the shape becomes sprung steel, which was a new invention, you're hitting the industrial revolution, like this lightweight thing that allows you to make these giant shapes is new. And the fact that it's now mass market and affordable is brand new, like that's exciting. So you see this reflection in what's going on in the culture in the clothes, just like now everybody is in sweatpants like it's the same thing it's just maybe a little less glamorous right,
0: right. so um, hey, we have glamorous sweatpants nowadays I mean there's lots of different <laughs> designs that's true we have rhinestones on our sweatpants right you know <laughs> you ways to
1: tie don't it like it no comment no comment I mean I, I have a closet full of 19th century dresses next to me so I'm not the one to ask about sweatpants
0: um, <laughs> I work yeah, from so- home I'm the one to ask about sweatpants <laughs> good
1: But yeah, so in the, I said the height of crinoline, because in my head, I was I'm thinking about shapes, right? And Mm -hmm. if we talk about crinolines, actually, there are multiple shapes of crinoline, like what the ideal shape was that you were trying to achieve changed. So in the 1840s, it's coming out of the 1830s, you're still in petticoats, it's a more a line, like more triangular shape, it's rounded, but it's like, you know, narrow and goes big. Once you start getting sprung steel, once you start getting cage crinolines, um, which are rows of boning, rows of hoops, Mm -hmm. that are attached usually with tapes or you can do them with ribbons. Um, They're quite flexible, they're very easy to sit down in. I get that question a lot. That they're quite bell shaped. So you start wide, like right at the top and you're coming down Mm -hmm. and making this bell shape. After you get past the very mid, like end of the civil war in America, mid-1860s, the shape shifts again. So it doesn't go away. The skirts stay big, but it shifts towards the back. So you get um, more oval-shaped hoops, Ellip- they're elliptical hoops is what they're called, where and sometimes you would have the addition of a small bustle pad at the back to kind of support that over your bum. And that uh, shape, with it has volume in the front, but most of it is shifted towards the back. So you see that in later 1860s dresses. And by the time we get to the early 1870s, like when May was in France or May was traveling in Europe, were into bustles, which is where pretty much mm-hmm. everything is shifted towards the back. And at the beginning of the 1870s, you still have some fullness in the front and then fullness around and then just like oodles of trim and pleating and ruffles and all bows. Butt bows are like my favorite thing in the entire world. And the 1870s are the best for butt bows. Um, you get <laughs> you know bows and all sorts of things on the back. And typically by then, because now the undergarments are changing too, instead of having this bell shape or an elliptical shape that you're wearing that goes all the way down from your waist, you might instead wear a bustle, which is something that just comes off the back of you. So it's tied around your waist, but Mm -hmm. then it's just a piece that comes down in the back to make that shape, and then some petticoats to add fullness at the front, rather than a full crinoline that's going all the way around to make roundness. And then everything goes away. So like you were saying, it happened later, it happens in the late 1870s, like early 1880s, but all of a sudden you go from big, big skirts to tight, tight, tight form to the body, modern parlance as we call that the natural form era. But as far as I know, that's not a period term, comes comes right in and you lose all that volume and you still have a lot of trim a lot of richness in the materials, if you could afford it, a lot of asymmetry and like really interesting colors and mismatched things, but not volume, like you're not building volume. That's not the point of the style. Mm -hmm. And then bustles come back in the late 1880s towards the end of Louisa's life where the fullness from the front is gone. You keep that kind of sleeker look in the front and it's just off the back. You just have this like very accentuated badonkadonk thing happening. Um, (laughs) And that's also a time when like, menswear inspired women's wear is very popular. And you see that continue into the 1890s after it transitions back into an A-line skirt with the large sleeves. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's very interesting watching the silhouettes change across the century. And thinking about the Alcotts, they would have experienced many of those. Like, if we start from the 1830s, when the girls were young, that's what Abigail would have been wearing. She would have had larger sleeves and these full skirts and then transitioning through into crinolines, having large, these large bell shapes into bustles. Like they were alive for all of that. The same Mm. way that clothes changed like pretty much decade to decade now, it was the same. But to our modern eye, like that looks much more extreme. But when you look at it, like the transitions are happening gradually.
0: Would they have changed with it or, you know, just based on like their social position and their financial position, would they have changed with the fashion or would they have been kind of behind the times? You know, how, how yeah. much did it change for people, I suppose? Yeah. So I think one of the things that's really
1: interesting is that people made more of their own things, especially in the early right. part of the 19th century. You do see mass production and sort of going out and buying clothes happening later at a lower financial tier. So okay. obviously if you are in Queen Victoria's court in 1832, you are not sewing your own dresses like a dressmaker <laughs> is making things for you, but for the Alcotts and for their contemporaries. And I would say with that like Yankee Boston spirit, even wealthy people in Boston were probably doing at least some of their own sewing, even if they were, you know, hiring dressmakers or or had a seamstress in the house to do a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that Louisa obviously worked doing some of that. Um, But especially when you get into people who didn't have enough money to hire servants or to hire someone else to make their clothes for them, they were making their own clothes. And so in that way, it's much easier to change your fashion when you can alter it. And there was there is a 19th century ideal or necessity, really, of just changing what you have like. There's a really interesting thing when you look at clothes, like original antique clothes, where you can see where they've been altered, either as someone's body changes and you're changing how a dress fits them, but also from period to period, like you're changing to update with the fashions. So I'm going to talk about the 1830s because it's a really easy example. In the 1830s, we talk about this decade with really big sleeves, but actually the, the type of sleeve and where the fullness was being very high at the shoulder or being sort of lower down, that changed over the course of the decade. So at the beginning of the 1830s, you have these giant like linebacker (laughs) sleeves (laughs) where all the fullness is right up at the shoulder. And then as you get into the later 1830s, the fullness slides down and becomes closer to the elbow and the lower part of the sleeve is the fullest. You want to reuse your dress. You're not going to go make a whole new dress because the sleeve fashion is changing and you can see extant dresses where you can see where someone took out a sleeve changed the sleeve like repleted it so that it's pleated up at the top into the arm side which is like your armhole, so that now it's pushing all of that fullness down and billowing out lower mm. to create that fashionable shape so when you know how to work with the materials and you can make your own clothes you can change things as you need to There's also a lot of things you can do that kind of make do and mend mentality, where you can can patch things, you can shift change out if you have a scrap of fabric from that project, or, you know, you can pull it off somewhere that no one will see. You can patch something, you can make it bigger, you can take it in if you need to. There's a quote, actually, in A Christmas Carol about Mrs. Cratchit, where she talks about having a twice turned gown, which is this concept that when your fabric faded and wore out from being worn, you could take the dress apart, flip all the pieces the other way around and put it back together again. So now the other side of the fabric is fresh and out. And then she had done that again, which is what twice turned means, Um, which is really like intended to show her poverty. And that's a phrase (laughs) that to a modern audience, like doesn't mean anything, but would have in the period. Um, Mm -hmm. So there are all sorts of things you can do. And there's actually a great um, quote from Edward Emerson talking about visiting the Alcotts and the calico curtains at Orchard House made from old dresses because, you know, they wore the the dresses out and then they made them into curtains. And I just love that.
2: That's really interesting. Can I hear your rant on the prairie
1: dresses? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. My theory. So in the 19th century, we'll go back. Women wore more structured undergarments typically than what we wear today. In the mid-19th century, they were called corsets. So if you're getting up every day and wearing a corset, which I have done, and you're going to go out and work in it, you don't do what in modern day is called tight lacing, which is wearing a corset and tightening it more than your body wants to be tightened into it to intentionally narrow your waist and train your waist to stay that way. That's not how a corset was worn when it Like imagine it's a bra. It's just, there's just more of it. Like that's what a corset is. Um, It offers back support. It makes the weight of your very heavy skirts that you're wearing go more evenly around your body, distributes that, takes it off of your actual waist. So instead of this cutting into you, it's distributed over a structure. Um, So it does a lot of things and it also supports your bust if you have one. But from a like fashion perspective, the benefit of a corset is your body, your weight can fluctuate and your actual dresses will look the same because the dress is made to fit over the structure. So even if you're like a little bit, you weigh a little bit less and so maybe your corset is a little bit tighter or you weigh a little bit more and it's a little bit looser, like for the most part, because your dresses fit over this like very smooth structure, you can still wear your clothes and everything's fine. And those like small weight fluctuations don't impact your clothing as much. Now we don't have that, which is fine. There's advantages to that too. But my theory on the prairie dresses is that we've all had a little bit of a COVID weight gain. And so suddenly these like flowy, loose fitting garments that don't pinch us, don't remind us that we've gained any weight, don't make us feel bad about our clothes not fitting anymore. And also like look really fun and kind of return to nature and all of these other things that are going on in the cultural zeitgeist. But that like fitting over maybe suddenly unfamiliar bodies I think is one of the advantages of prairie dresses so that's my rant on prairie dresses it's really about courses the fact is that
2: you're not wearing the right undergarment to like support the dress it's just kind of like flowy and loose and like not
1: no prairie dresses are supposed to be flowy and loose but I think like like if if I so like I So I'll be honest, I've had some things that I've tried on to go back to work that haven't fit the way they used to. And that's very upsetting. And I don't like it. As a modern person, I worried a lot about putting my ball gowns back on because I haven't been to a ball in two years at this point. And a few weeks ago, I wanted to put on a ball gown to make a TikTok, whatever. It's 2021. <laughs> like, yeah, things have happened. Own it. And so I did. And it fit like everything fit fine because fundamentally when I put my corset on, did I notice a difference in how everything fit? Like, yes, but for the most part, like there wasn't enough of a difference where it impacted anything because everything fit over that shape that already existed. Right.
0: And and the corset can be adjusted in ways that Mm -hmm. our clothes are not made to be adjusted. Your zipper and your button zips and buttons in one way and that's it. You know, right. And I can change the lacing on my corset as much right. as I
1: need to. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. So Mrs. Wow.
2: Alcott being anti-corset wasn't really about her being like women can't breathe, they can't get anything done. It'd be the same as her today being like, I'm not wearing a bra. This is ridiculous.
1: So I think I think that's interesting. I think there are a few interpretations of that. One is, <laughs> hell yes, Marmies burn bras. <laughs> I'm all for that <laughs> interpretation. I think I'll be honest, I've done a lot of reading of like Louisa's letters and journals and writings in particular, looking for comments about dress reform. There was a dress reform movement in the 19th century. There were people who felt like clothing was restrictive and it was like, I'm not going to try to argue that like everything was perfect and we should hundred percent go back to that. It's just different. right? You know, I think there, are, as you get more fashionable as you get more towards haute couture clothing it is restrictive, especially like people mm-hmm. who don't have to work, who don't need to move as much, like having clothing that doesn't allow you to do that is fine. Um, and that's true now, just as much as it mm-hmm. has been true in other time periods. But I, so I, I don't think that Marmee was arguing in the like bra burning, we should just not wear any underwear sense. I think <laughs> that there is kind of a middle ground there of seeing certain fashion trends and women being asked to wear a lot more clothing like a lot of dress reform, I think we focus as modern people on corsets because it's something that we understand. It Mm -hmm. looks restrictive. So it's like very easy to be like, yeah, of course you don't want to wear that. That must be terrible. Um, But actually, if you look at what dress reformers were wearing, a lot of it actually centers around pants, like having shorter skirts and pants underneath or bloomers. And that just, that offers freedom of movement in a different way. So it's the combination of things. Like when you take away one part of the ensemble and you're not wearing all of these skirts that need their weight distributed, or you you are now like riding a horse astride. And if you are you know changing what you're doing in your garments and the rest of your garments are different, then suddenly you want a different undergarment to go along with your outer garments. And that to me just makes sense as a concept. So. Um, that's how I interpret it. And then there's actually an interesting dress reform section in Rose and Bloom, um, where they're talking about Rose and what Rose is going to wear. And the aunts are trying to get her to dress in a fashionable, very feminine way. And her uncle is kind of against it. And they have this argument and they gave her both, give her both sets of clothes. And the thing that really sticks out for me in that particular passage is how, It's not just about the restriction of movement or like what it is that she's being asked to wear. It's uh, like an almost too early force towards adulthood. And it was very common in the 19th century for children's clothing to look like adult clothing. Like Mm -hmm. there's a period where everybody's in dresses, boys and girls, because you need access to diapers and all that stuff. It's just practical. And then all of a sudden you go into adult clothing. Like there isn't really children's clothing a lot of the time. And so to me, that section is really interesting because it's, She doesn't talk about it in terms of sexualization, but to me, it's a parallel to what we talk about now, where Rose is being put into these very fashionable garments that make her look like an adult woman as opposed to like a child. And so for her as kind of this transitional tween teenager, is she being pushed too early? The aunts are pushing her too early into this like mode of womanhood that she shouldn't have to do yet, that she shouldn't have to be ready for. And so in that section, dress reform is about giving her sort of more space to be a child. And so I think that was really interesting to me when I read that again recently. And I think that, because that book is all about rose maturing and kind of coming of age, like dress reform in that sense, again, isn't about corsets. It's not about whether she's restricted or not. It's about what the clothing means in the context of the society around her. That,
0: that does give such a different perspective because I could see Marmy arguing that type of thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That gives me a lot to chew on because you do just kind of hear it from that one perspective. So I love that you have kind of a much broader understanding of what that may have meant for the Elcots.
1: Yeah, I'll be honest. I wear a corset at Orchard House and it is contentious. And so this is a topic that I have thought a lot about and had to defend like (laughs) greatly. I also play Ellen Emerson a lot and she did wear corsets for the
2: record. Okay. (laughs) I just remember when the 2019 Little Women came out and everyone was like, we're going to dress like the movie and like all these like layers. And then there was this backlash of like, women are dressing like bag ladies. <laughs> 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 it was like, kind of true. Like, we're just like. You know, throwing on any plaid thing that's all mismatched. And it was like it the was pre-pandemic funny.
0: fashion before the pandemic actually happened. Mm-hmm. But that kind it, of ended up becoming the pandemic
2: yeah, it's style, kind of, I feel um, like. Saw into the future there.
1: Mm-hmm. The costumes in the 2019 Little Women are, I think, a really good so example. Inaccurate. of Embodying directorial vision was what I was going to say. Um, But yes, not accurate. And people, before the movie came out, like before I'd seen it, people kept sending me screenshots of the trailer being like, why are they wearing elbow length gloves? What are they doing? What's, why is she wearing Ugg boots in this scene? Like all of these things. And I was getting very concerned, but then I loved the movie. And so I was like, okay, I'm like, it's okay. I'm willing to forgive the inaccuracy, but yeah. Right, but I think
2: what it (laughs) shows us is that it was more our idea of what it would have been like than at all what it was actually like. Like, it's just like, if I'm going to imagine the 19th century knowing nothing about what people really wore, maybe I would think, oh, you know, I bet they just like wore all their clothes at once because they were cold.
1: It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. <laughs> Someone call me when they do a May biopic because May loved fashion and she writes, like, she describes her clothes and Louisa describes May's clothes <laughs> in her um, letters. And so I, I feel like there's so much that could be used for some costumer to- Oh my to gosh, a May bio yeah, I feel like, I feel like that,
2: that intrigues me more. Like, thinking of, like, a May screenplay, yeah, I could see that moving quickly. I could see it having, like, a real- story arc that's kind of easy to follow and like it'd be so interesting mm-hmm. to have these portrayals of louisa and bronson not as the main characters like just like you wouldn't have to think that hard about their portrayals because you'd be writing from may's perspective
0: please. i think it'd be amazing you would be like her in france would be like timeline a and then you got your timeline b is like your flashbacks you know mm be great love it and may was an artist like i i there is something really appealing about keeping her
1: in the visual medium or having Mm -hmm. her in a visual medium Mm -hmm. gives you a lot of opportunity so
2: true as opposed to like trying to capture her on paper which you know Mm -hmm. of all the Alcotts, i think louisa is the best on paper there you know her writing itself is so vivid and crisp and clear He Bronson, he just doesn't translate. I don't know how different he was on paper. Yeah. Um, And the same with May, I think, like, compared to looking at her paintings, when you look at her paintings, you get a totally different story of her, how Mm multifaceted she was, the depth of with which she, like, saw other people's emotions and experiences. I don't know if you get that from her writing. Her writing is a bit
1: light on that, maybe. I think it depends on what of her writing you're looking at because her it's funny her journals are minimal (laughs) like Mm -hmm. um, it for me when I read May's journals it very much feels like she was told to write in her journal and so she was going to and then there's when she was experiencing like real deep emotion it was not natural for her to turn to her journal so like As far as I know, we don't have any journals for her from the time when Lizzie was very ill and when she passed Mm -hmm. away. Like I've read the journal at Houghton that is those years, um, like 1857 to 1859, and there's just huge gaps in it. Yeah, And she'll pick it up again. Yeah, she'll pick it up again and she'll acknowledge like, oh, I haven't written in this in a really long time. And so I don't think it's that she was keeping other journals and they're lost to time. I think it's that writing wasn't the way she processed. Mm -hmm. Whereas for Louisa, it, it more, it was more so. Um, but when you read her letters to Alf Whitman, especially, but also to her family members, like I think in the, that sense, May captures herself on the page. But even in those letters, she sketches. Like she, when mm-hmm. she was in Syracuse at, um, teaching at the asylum, she sketches what the asylum looked like and all of these components that she's trying to describe, she includes as illustrations.
2: I remember some, someone at Orchard House told me that when Madeline Bedell came to like talk about her second biography her second half of her biography that you know remains to this day unpublished that she said to everyone like you're looking in the wrong places you know there are letters that i've read that explain everything it sounded like she was implying anna's letters which Mm -hmm. anna's letters you know are very detailed and especially as the rest of the family was old and dying anna was still writing a lot so you do get filled in I think on certain parts with that but uh, I still kind of wonder about that like cryptic description that she gave like you're looking at the wrong places cool could you have
1: finished your (laughs) biography or told us what those places were and then we We could written it down (laughs) yeah Yeah. the legendary aspect of Orchard House the the cryptic stories that yeah, someone exactly. else has to go discover. Yeah, exactly. That there just
2: yeah. is so much more to discover.
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting too, like the way Houghton and archives in general tend to sort things by the author. So you get, like, you know, here's all of May's letters, here's all of Anna's letters, here's all of Louise's letters, et cetera. And you don't really get a sense of any story until you put all of those perspectives together, or at least that's my take on things. And so, like, reading Anna's letters in parallel to reading. John Pratt's letters, her husband, like you get a very different sense of their married life than when you're only reading one or the other. So there are things like Mm -hmm. that, that I think are harder to do with May because not everything is in one collection. Houghton has John Pratt's letters, they don't have Ernest Neerker's. So there's some challenge there. But I think it's helpful when you can get those different perspectives. And I think that's why, partially why I'm so drawn to the Concord, May's Concord time, her Concord writings, because the people that she's hanging out with, Annie Keyes Bartlett, Julian Hawthorne, the Emerson girls, like all of those letters, those are other prominent Concord families. All of those letters are still in special collections. Like you can get access to them. Julian published his own memoir. How accurate is that? Maybe slightly debatable. (laughs) But like all of those sources exist. And so you can start to piece together kind of what things looked like. And that's really fun for me. Like your own friends. Like, you know, everyone. Really? Well, you've been doing it
2: such a long time. Part of the world.
1: I sound, I think, a little bit, like the librarian who's been locked in the room with the books too long (laughs) when I give tours occasionally or someone will ask me a question and I'll just be like yeah let me tell you this story about May and Julian and the lily pads and like go off on wacky tangents but I appear to be entertaining people and so no one has complained yet so I think we're good see how long I get away with it
2: um please do it forever like you're a (laughs) treasured orchard house
1: (laughs) may they value you the way they should It's home. I love going back. It'll probably always be home in that way.
2: See you next week for Louisa Through the Ages, our conversation with Daniel Sheely. Dr. Sheely is a preeminent Alcott researcher and scholar, and he worked on compiling and editing Louisa's letters and journals for publication. We talked with Dr. Sheely about the books he's written and his most exciting research discoveries.
0: For more about Louisa, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Let Genius Burn. If you're enjoying the show, please give us five stars on your podcast app. Reviews help us find new listeners and new fans for Louisa. You'll find more information, including the resources used for this episode, in the show notes and on our website at letgeniusburn.com.